everything's my fault. It's all about me. I heard secondhand a conversation that, or an interview that was done with Jerry Brown, our governor, who was asked about the new supermajority and the two houses of government, of the state government, the fact that the Democrats have a supermajority and the, basically the the Republican Party has been rendered kind of mute in the state of California. And wasn't he worried that with this, uh, because of the Democratic tendency to want to provide for whatever is needed, that the desires will be, will be such that uh, how are you going to deal with all the different requests for different, for different uh, needs and different desires that people want to have fulfilled. And he responded, desires are endless. I cut them off. And this is really a, a central... The cut them off is, is not always the, the agreed-upon methodology in all of the different Buddhist traditions, but the recognition that desires are endless is a, a central part of the teaching, that the tenacious tendency of our mind to want what it doesn't have and then the flip side to not want what we do have. And that if unchecked, this tendency of mind will continually generate a, uh, a feeling of uh, dissatisfaction, a sense of unsatisfactoriness, it's funny, I had just overheard this conversation, about this conversation, and then someone came to meet with me early this morning. And it's someone who periodically has the good fortune of being able to go to uh, Hawaii and was describing, and I, I was able to feel the, the shared pleasure of it, but describing being able to lie on a beach with a book that he 
enjoyed reading and just the, he said, there's just, this just gives me so much joy. And almost, in, almost implicit in, our, in him telling me that, because he knows, because he, he's talking to me, that, that I'm thinking, yes, no doubt. We have, at least in, the, in Buddha Dharma, we have six senses. And each of them has, from time to time, not just from time to time, each of them is sensual. Each of them has the potential to produce incredible pleasure. We can have incredible pleasure. But that kind of situation of being on the beach with the perfect novel, although it is exquisitely pleasant, is also undeniably unreliable. Those conditions can change. May go to the beach and the same book turns into one that's not so great. The, the clouds come over and it starts pouring rain and it does that in this particular place in Hawaii. It's Hanalei Bay, you know that place. So conditions change and and our dependence on satisfying our desires or or arranging our life to have our life focused on attaining these moments continually sets us up for dissatisfaction and this is in some way the the these movements in our mind the tendency to think that there is a, a perfect pleasure to be found in changing in the changing circumstances of our life. This is the function in our mind of what's called the hindrance of desire, or the personification of this hindrance is the is the character in the mythic character called Mara, who's constantly telling us to devote our attention. It's not to really do anything bad. Mara is called the tempter, the temptress. Mara doesn't want you to do things that are really bad, evil, even though Mara is sometimes called the evil one. But Mara doesn't want you to do evil. Mara just wants you to stay stuck in the wheel of samsara, wants to have you stay stuck in searching for happiness in ways that can't give you lasting satisfaction. That's what Mara and Mara comes in the, um, in the voice of jealousy, all the different poisons in our mind, jealousy, uh, all kinds of insecurities, but it specifically comes in the form of the wanting mind and the aversive mind. And also the restless and agitated mind that sometimes comes in the form of anxiety that often is born of rumination about the future, all because Mara tells you that the future is where that deliciousness is to be found. Or Mara that comes in the form of, of great dullness, heaviness. At its extreme, sometimes the feeling of, of depression. Because Mara sometimes comes in the form of rumination about what already happened. And comes in the form of rumination 
of, of lack of self-worth. And, and that produces a lot of heaviness and dullness in the mind. And then also comes in the form of, Mara comes in the form of doubt. And I think last week I, I described how our sense of self gets created in, in a moment. That, and specifically, I talked about the doubting self that arises. And the doubting self as an appearance in our mind is just something that we, that's created moment to moment that can't really capture who you are, but makes it seem like there's something wrong with us. And it, like I, I'll just review a little what I said last week. I said we could be having a little pain in our side or on our knee, something, and this often shows up in meditation. And that knee pain initially is just sensation. If we look closely at it, it's changing sensation. It's, it's usually not very dangerous. It's just something that shows up, and most of the sensations are like that in our life. But our mind has a tendency, Mara has a ten- tendency to take that, those sensations and turn them into, uh-oh, and then have some kind of reaction of li- dislike, and then that dislike turning into, uh-oh, this reminds me of lots of associations. This reminds me of when I had that pain the last time. And the doubting mind will say, every time I try anything like meditation, some pain comes and stops me in my tracks. And pretty soon my mind is thinking, I can't do this. And everything I try in my life, I can't do very well. And that everybody else seems to be doing fine, and I'm the only one that can't meditate. And and as I asked last week, what really happened? And really nothing happened except the voice of Mara, that voice of doubt, came into the mind and turned a simple sensation into this profound drama of poor me who can't get it. Somebody who doesn't even exist, an imaginary me. But, our, but Mara comes again and again. Just like desires are endless, Mara endlessly visits. The point of our practice is is never to uh, think that we can get rid of Mara. You can't get get rid of desires. Desires are endless. You can't even get rid of doubt. Doubt will have... You can, to, to a certain degree, especially doubt about practice and doubt about the potential for awakening, that kind of doubt can be uprooted. But the tendency of our identity view to, to, to have doubts about ourselves in some form or another, that comes with imagining we're somebody. Everybody has doubt. And everybody has dullness of mind. Everybody, from time to time, just because of our brain function, we sometimes ruminate and we sometimes fixate. And our fixations are often, in some ways, negative about the future, negative about the past. It's been studied over and over that our our brains have a negative bias. We tend to be like, with things that are negative or unpleasant, we tend to be like Velcro and like Teflon with things that are pleasant. We don't give much attention to them. And so it's very easy. And Mara comes in the form of all these different tendencies of mind that keep us bound in a, in a cycle of dissatisfaction. So we, we can't necessarily get rid of Mara and these different voices. And it's central in the teaching that we at least learn to highlight, to bring into the light very clearly and very precisely the 
moment to moment as much as possible recognition when one of these most common voices, most common habits of mind, common states of mind have have entered into our mind stream, when they've actually showed up. So it's And the five that are highlighted as important to recognize, I call them five of the voices of Mara, are the, the wanting mind, as I discussed, the aversive mind, the mind that says, I don't like this, the mind that says, if I don't get away from this, I'll never be happy, if I don't get away from this person, if I don't get away, if, I, if they don't change the way they, at least on retreats, if they don't change the food that they serve, if this, if, if this teacher doesn't stop talking, so whatever it is, if it doesn't change, I can't be happy. If these people don't stop making noise, if they don't stop breathing hard, if they don't stop, if they, if they don't grow up, whatever it is that you're thinking about somebody, about, your, about yourself, or it's that tendency to not like and then to have that harden into aversion. And what happens with that, with, as with all of moments of aversion or dislike, is they create an internal pressure, and that internal pressure, that tension, releases, the release valve is that, is that storytelling that our mind does, that building a case for the, either the, the um, idealization of the pleasant or the prosecution of, the one who, of that which is unpleasant. I think I brought along tonight, just in case I got in this terrain. Yeah, here it is. This is someone who experienced a thought that produced aversion. I'm sure you've had a few today. I had one while we were sitting tonight. I'll tell you the story after I'm done reading this. A woman wants some potatoes for a meal she's cooking. So she sends her husband to the marketplace to buy potatoes. As he walks out of the door, she calls after him, be sure and get a good price. So all the way to the marketplace, the man's thinking about potatoes and what he'll have to pay. So you... It's natural to think about potatoes and what you have to pay, but it doesn't stop there. Something triggers a little reaction. If he buys the best potatoes, he knows he'll have to pay more than if he buys the lesser quality potatoes. On the other hand, the lesser quality potatoes are just that, not so good. In fact, he knows he'll have to be very careful. This is where it gets into trouble. He'll have to be very careful in buying other than the top price potatoes because the seller might try to stick him with a bad potato even a rotten potato. When he thinks of someone cheating him by giving him a rotten potato, he gets really mad. Why do people have to be so greedy and stick me with a rotten tomato potato? Just at that point, he reaches the stall of the potato seller and screams at him, you can keep your rotten potatoes, and he walks off. <laughs> now, what happened? He had a thought that somebody might stick him with a rotten potato. He might cheat him. And that thought produced a aversion. This evening, I, when, the, when I was leaving, the, when the last person that I, that I met with was leaving the courtyard where I uh, have an office on Union Street, someone for about the fifth time in the last two months, you can tell I have a little charge around this, 
someone lock the gate. And so the person I was seeing was locked in, and then they had to walk all the way back to, to get me, and then I had to once again go unlock the gate, and I have probably at least five times now complained about being locked in for the people being, who were coming next to be locked out and the person leaving lock, being locked in. And I've been told over and over that they were going to take it. So I started to, this came into my mind while I was sitting. At the time, I just kind of dealt with it and forgot about it. But it came into my mind while I was sitting. And I started planning my revenge again. <laughs> but I began to recognize, oh, this is Mara. And as is the, as is the recommendation for dealing with Mara, is that you recognize, you notice the story of Mara and all of all the aversion and all the the ill will and and aggression, whatever it is, but you expand beyond the story of Mara and feel what aversion is like in the body, in the here and now. Feel what the feel what that state of mind is like. Now we very rarely Usually when we're in a state of aversion, we mostly, even though if somebody told you, do you feel comfortable, you'd say, no, I feel, feel really frustrated or angry. But what we usually do is instead of actually feeling it, bringing it into the light of aware, awareness, highlighting the state of aversion, we just keep thinking about it until, we, until it hardens into a kind of rumination, a kind of addictive pattern of making a case for the prosecution and until we're exhausted, contracted, tight, and, and then finally the exhaustion just, you just check out in a way. But the beautiful thing of sitting and having that appear is the moment that my, I expanded beyond just the story of what they, what they did and what they won't be able to do anymore and whether, whether or not they'll ever get it. I just felt the impact in the body, felt what aversion was like. And by meeting the light of attention, that the whole complex, since I was no longer feeding the story of it, the felt experience w- remained, but it, once it was felt, it just started to move and change as it will when it's not being sustained and maintained and built up by the, by the feeding of that story. So Mara will keep, Mara keeps us engaged in a state of becoming, in a state of, of having our sense of well-being dependent on how things turned out. But I was not going to wait until I got the landlord to cooperate and make sure that people check the room before they lock the door. I can't wait for that to be well. I had to recover it now. And none of us has to wait until things work out. None of us has to wait until the beach scene is as beautiful as we remember that perfect scene was. And this is why the Buddha recommended not having your sense of well-being dependent on conditions, not being caught in what he called lokiya sukha, the sukha meaning comfort, happiness, that depends on things turning out the way you want them to. 
said that kind of happiness, although there's no doubt because we live in a sensual world, that kind of pleasure and happiness comes. It comes for everyone from time to time. But that kind of happiness, without proper understanding, becomes the cause of more and more and more wanting. With proper understanding, we see that those conditions come, they're beautiful, we experience them, the full joy of them, but we let them go. We don't cling. This has, of course, been spoken about, been written about in literature. William Blake, uh, in his poem, he says, He or she who binds to herself a joy does the winged life destroy. But she who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity, sunrise. So if we have proper understanding of Mara and her or his his seductive view that something, some place, some person, some situation will make you happier than you are, you will continue to wander a long time confused, dissatisfied. But on the other hand, if you, this is the suggestion, because even though that kind of happiness is considered uh, wonderful, it's also considered the happiness of slavery, the happiness of bondage. And instead, the Buddha suggested that you aim for, that you, you aim for, actually, you don't aim anywhere. <laughs> but as a matter of using language, you aim for the happiness of freedom, the happiness that doesn't depend on circumstances, the happiness that knows that whatever arises passes away that happiness that comes from knowing that even the, even your sorrows are changing conditions, and the joys are as well. And so we practice, when we practice, we practice recognizing Mara, not deleting Mara, but recognizing Mara, seeing Mara as desire, as aversion, as worry, as as doubt, as all of these mental states that will keep us in a state of of endless waiting for the the future that never arrives, that keeps the golden dreams just one step ahead and then teases us with the the momentary pleasure that actually is, as one teacher said, it's designed to make us thirstier. It's, It's like being thirsty and being given salt water. And that's basically what we're taught to do. So the idea is don't give up the things of the world. As, so, as Suzuki Roshi put it, renunciation isn't giving up anything of this world, but it's understanding that it goes away. And in that process, discovering through the joy of seeing things clearly, the joy of vipassana happiness or the happiness of insight, that there is a joy that comes from just from not being so bound up in things. There's a joy that comes from just experiencing that perfect moment. Even the, even the sorrow that comes when it's fading becomes the, the cause of our sense of well-being. So that we don't, we don't have, it doesn't have to always be pleasant. In fact, it's the painful moments sometimes that, that stop us from that that settle us, that tenderize us so that we're not in that constant state of search.
But as the poet Rilke put it, we are the driving ones. Ah, but the step of time. Think of it as a dream in what forever remains. All that is hurrying soon will be over with. Only what lasts can bring us to the truth. Young men and women, don't put your trust in the trials of flight, into the hot and the quick. All things already rest. Darkness, morning light, flower and book. It's a reminder, don't, if you can help it, don't lift out of this moment to find relief. Just opened to what even the state of mind that seems like you are impossibly dependent on how things turn out, whether you get what you want or get rid of what you don't want. See that for what it is. Turn that into your reminder of your love of being right here. This is a poem that was just passed on to me recently from Haven Trevino. Health is easy to keep, difficult to restore. Emotions move easily when they first arise, become pain when suppressed. To respond and release means less toil later. That means to be open to what you're experiencing right now. An armored heart is easily injured. And pursuing fantasy invites despair. A great life is composed of many details, so walk firmly. Each step counts. A grand canyon began as a little cleft. A great master was born a small babe. Be happy in your place. Growth is inevitable. Your start and finish are the same. The journey of enlightenment begins where you are right now. One who controls will be out of control. And the competitive spirit is ever wanting. The sage does not control and maintains perfect balance. She does not grab for power, so overflows with it. The only treasure a master seeks is a peaceful heart. Her only goal to be, to be full where she is her only doctrine to allow. By returning to her origins, she brings us all forward. So it's one thing to talk about. It's one thing to talk about Mara and the, the seductive power of the voice of desire and the voice of aversion. But it's, it's really essential that we develop the tools to be able to recognize them because there's an enormous power. Anybody who's been on retreat, how many of you have been on residential retreats before? Many people here. So those who have not, those who have know the phenomena, phenomena that is often referred to as the VR and the VV. The VR is the initials for Vipassana Romance, where someone triggers a pleasant feeling, someone you look at, someone you see, someone you, you, something about them that you like, and that produces a, a pleasant feeling and maybe a 
some pleasant feeling that has a really positive association, but it doesn't stop there. It immediately spawns or proliferates into this complicated romantic journey from how to meet that person, how to date that person, how to mate that person, how to marry that person, how to family with that person, how to travel with that person, and then how to maybe getting divorced from that person, all in the span of about 30 seconds. And if, it's, if it isn't recognized very quickly, and even sometimes if it is recognized as just the discharge of the wanting mind and felt and the attention taken away from the object and then allow the, the state of desire to be felt, if, that, if it isn't uh, attended to, it, it hardens into such an intense craving, such an intense desire, that it basically blots out everything. And the assumption is there is no way on earth I have found my soulmate. There is no way on earth I can ever be happy unless I consummate this in some way. And in most cases, as you've, if you've had a VR, and I'm sure almost everybody who's, been, who's here who's been on retreats had one, in most cases the other person is completely, as in very many times in my case, the other person was a completely oblivious to me and didn't share my, my amazing <laughs> desires. <laughs> And as I, shaking at the, in the knees, approach the person at the end of a retreat, <laughs> very often there was the, the equivalent of my daughter, my nine-year-old daughter's eye roll, you know, <laughs> who are you? <laughs> but it's really painful. And along, you can, people wander for weeks always thinking that the person that they're desiring is noticing them too and that, that they, they happen to cross their path and it's all magical and, and it becomes a, a source of tremendous, tremendous pain. And this is the wanting mind. And, but it becomes an amazing manure for bodhi, for awakening, because when you feel what it's like how to be in the throes of Mara and the tenaciousness of that uh, of that pattern. If it's felt, not only does it show itself as a changing condition, but it also, it also opens up that door of compassion. Because you really see that you're, at those moments, you're just like a, um, you're like a puppy on a leash. You're just dragged around by, by the, the master is the, is the wanting mind. And it becomes, hopefully, an inspiration for practice. And the reverse is true, which is called the VV, which is called, otherwise known as the Vipassana Vendetta, where somebody triggers an unpleasant and, and it, just, it just becomes this global sense of ill will toward everything and everyone, but usually starting with one specific target who is the reason for all your misery. And if only they could just be eliminated or something your relief would be assured. And that's also extremely painful, especially when you're in the throes of it. And because of the negative bias of our mind, it, it, the tendency is to get even more fixated on, 
on aversion and ill will. But noticing that, learning, having the tools to work with it mindfully, heartfully, opens up that possibility of self-compassion. The unrecognized mental states, the unrecognized pain in the mental states, and we all know we're in pain when we're in that aversion or in that intense desire to some degree, but until it's actually felt the self-compassion, the heart doesn't really quite open to uh, what, we, what we're all dealing with as humans. So a lot of our practice is creating the conditions to be able to navigate these particular mental states. And specifically, with ill will or aversion, we develop, if you practice a lot and you practice every day, which is part of the encouragement here, you develop certain kinds of factors, qualities in your mind that fortify you, stabilize you to be able to tolerate and turn, tur- turn whatever difficulty in your life into your path, into a path of awakening and into compassion and wisdom. And essentially, the, the qualities that you use, there's actually a quality, that, a quality of mind that's useful for each one of the hindrances. For example, for the, the heaviness and dullness of mind, it's something we utilize every day, but specifically in our practice, it's really awakening and enlivening for the mind that's really fallen into dullness and 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 heaviness. And it's the quality called vitaka. It's the capacity to aim our mind, to direct our mind at, uh, at something, to pay attention, the quality, the learning how to pay attention. So when we sit here tonight, and very often in our training of practice and our development of practice, we, we try to learn how to be here and not just be so scattered. So we usually have, when we're starting, we have an anchor for our attention. We use, most often in this tradition, people use the breath. You use the, because it's something, use the feeling of the breath in our body. And this is reliable, at least as long as we're alive, because it's always present and it's something we can return to. But you may not know that every time you direct your attention to the breath, you're actually awakening your mind. You're actually, this quality of aiming your mind or gathering your mind or collecting your mind is also awakening it. How is it doing that? It's actually putting you in touch. It's putting you back in touch with reality, with life, with life which is uh, inexhaustibly alive. It is, it is vital, so different from past and future that are just mental. Remember, we've discussed that a lot. Past doesn't exist, just as ideas in the present. Future doesn't exist, ideas in the present. There is only now, and we miss now. But when we aim at now, we wake up. We get enlivened. So if you, anybody in this room, just aimed their attention just here, and for even a few minutes, didn't look back and you don't look ahead, 
Don't look back in the imagined past. Don't look ahead into the imagined future. Don't look sideways either. Just sense the feeling of immediacy. And it may be helpful, if you're used to it, just to go right to your body and your breath. It may not seem so right now, but in that instant, you're planting the seed of, 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 you're actually reconnecting with that inexhaustible resource we call life or presence, immediacy. And I notice whenever I do that at any point in the day, when I simply let my last thought fade away and before the next one comes and I just check out, the life of the present moment. Sometimes it's the breath. Sometimes it's a step if I'm walking. Sometimes it's turning a handle on a door. If I aim my mind right there, it perks me up a little bit. So this very simple activity, we can do all day long. Aim your mind. This deals a lot with torpor. What's... This may not... This may be a kind of leap in your mind to see how this works, but the quality of being able to stay with whatever you're noticing, it's called vichara, to rub against, to stay with, to sink into, to really not just look, be with your breath or whatever you're doing superficially, but to really stay with it. This is considered the antidote to doubt. Because it's the unsustained awareness that opens up the space for our mind to just go off into uh, its usual its usual bias toward negativity and that usually uh, lands in some kind of story of, of insufficiency, either the moment, ourselves, the teachings, the practice, any way that we devolve into doubt with a project we're doing. It is partly because we have not been able to sustain our attention to what we're doing. By sustaining attention, it it leaves that um, it leaves it doesn't leave big gaps. And interestingly enough, one of the things that we've noticed, I've noticed in my own practice, and many people have noticed, is even attending to the breath. There is the in-breath and the out-breath. I can tell you're all really captivated by this right now. There's the in-breath. See, I had a doubt arise in my mind because I got scattered for a moment. Anyway, there's an in-breath and an out-breath. And at the end of the out-breath, there's often a little space. And it's often in the space between the breaths. That's when people space out in meditation if they're using mindfulness of breathing as, a, as an anchor. Are you having trouble hearing, Marissa? Is everybody else having trouble hearing? Okay. So as part of the practice, we encourage people to sustain awareness in that space between the breath by either having a touch point that they go to, some sensation in the body, or simply being interested in and staying with that space, what that's like, and falling into it. And by having a continuity of awareness, mind doesn't go off as much. It just it stays with the reality of the present moment. Because our mind devolves into doubt a lot, very good to learn how to sustain attention, whatever you're doing. 
the just briefly in t- being intensely interested in what you're uh, feeling, doing, exploring, whether it's the breath or whether it's a project, whatever it is, intense interest, otherwise known as rapture. The word in Pali is pity. Rapture, intense interest, is the antidote for ill will. It is the antidote in terms of a, a factor of mind. Of course, love is the antidote for ill will. And any, any way that you, that you incline toward uh, friendliness, goodwill, is a, is a wonderful antidote toward, if your tendency is toward anger. But the, just in dealing with the aversive mind, there's something about rapture that, that functions as an antidote that intense interest, and it, even, ra- even aversion itself, when it's arising, to take an interest in the state. And that's all I'm really talking about tonight. Instead of just thinking about aversion, feel it. Sense it. What's that like? And it, it requires that we feel unpleasantness and that we use even things that are unpleasant to help us find our seat. Then we use for restlessness, we use... We use the uh, the quality of mind called sukha or comfort or happiness, and this is a quality that comes from concentration, from orienting ourselves again and again to the present moment by aiming and by sustaining, by being intensely interested. Quite naturally, more comfort comes, and this is a, an antidote for restlessness. So, and finally, the one pointedness that comes when our mind does not move, when we experience what's called ekagata, where we feel that connection and sustained connection to the immediacy of the present moment, where our mind for a time doesn't want to be somewhere else, where the present moment becomes so compelling that the desire for anything else becomes absurd. It's enough. This is the antidote for the hindrance of desire. All of these five qualities, the aiming and the sustaining and the interest and the comfort and the one-pointedness, all come, all grow organically out of the very practice of insight and loving-kindness. So practice every day, aiming, sustaining, finding comfort, orienting yourself to the present moment, finding that vital point, that inexhaustible presence that you are, that you don't have to create. All of this is a, what one could say is a, what I like to say, it's a reclamation progress, a prog- project of what's already always here and has been ignored, has been overlooked, and we only feel diminished because we've lost contact with that inexhaustible resource, that natural freedom, that natural great peace that you are. So I leave you with a poem from an anonymous 14th century samurai. That really has that sense of choosing the highest happiness. I have no parents. I make the heaven and earth my parents. I have no home. I make awareness my home. I have no life or death. I make the tides of breathing my life and death. I have no divine power. I make honesty my divine power. I have no means. 
I make understanding my means. I have no secrets. I make character my magic secret. I have no body. I make endurance my body. I have no eyes. I make the flash of lightning my eyes. I have no ears. I make sensibility my ears. I have no limbs. I make promptness my limbs. I have no strategy. I make unshadowed by thought my strategy. I have no designs. I make seizing the opportunity by the forelock my design. I have no miracles. I make right action my miracles. I have no principles. I make adaptability to all circumstances my principles. I have no tactics. I make emptiness and fullness my tactics. I have no talents. I make ready wit my talent. I have no friends. I make my mind my friend. I have no enemy. I make carelessness my enemy. I have no armor. I make benevolence and righteousness my armor. I have no castle. I make immovable mind my castle. I have no sword. I make absence of myself my sword. So let's sit quietly for one moment, uh, absent of self, full of everything. no castle. I make immovable mind my castle. I have no sword. I make absence of myself my sword. May all beings know the happiness of freedom. May all beings have their the hindrances as their path. May all beings live with ease. May all beings be free. And may our practice tonight and every night and every day be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. May all be free. So thanks for going over 9 o'clock. Just a couple announcements real quickly. Next week, you have the good fortune of having Tom Moon take this seat. He'll be, he's a psychologist. You can read his bio on, on the Mission Dharma website. He's, he's a, a wonderful teacher and uh, interesting guy. And there will be no group on Christmas Day, but I will be here on New Year's Day or New Year's Day evening. So let's, uh, let's all bring in the new year together. But next, this coming Saturday, the 15th, we have a half-day retreat uh, in just down the street uh, near, uh, near Goff and Market. And it's on our website, and there may even be some flyers in the back. Half-day retreat, 9 to 1. And it's for all of us. And, uh, yeah, just everybody come. Half-day retreat. 
Saturday morning. And let's see what else. So I'll be back on the 1st. Remember, no group on December 25th, but next week, December 18th, we have Tom Moon. So please come and support him. Support him generously. He will offer his talk freely as his practice of generosity. And our job as a Sangha is to support him generously with our, with our financial support. And that's how we always offer it. So thank you from me for any support you offer me. And also, we meet because people are um, generous enough to offer Donna for the room rental here at the church, $150 a week. Any support is deeply appreciated. If you want to write a check to the church, it can be tax deductible. Put Mission Dharma on the memo line. Otherwise, cash, PayPal on our website. Any way of offering Donna to, to, uh, for either teacher Donna or room rental Donna. Baskets, all different ways of doing it. Thank you in advance, and thanks for your practice. Thanks for staying later tonight. Did I forget any? Anyway, be well, be mindful, aim, sustain. Feel rapture, comfort, one-pointedness.